Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast, where we will bring you some of the most interesting interviews and features from the world of tech. Visit irishtechnews.ie and check out our podcast section to explore all of our previous episodes. You can subscribe to our podcast using whatever your favourite app or service is by visiting anchor.fm forward slash irish tech news. Hi and welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast. My name is Melanie Boylan and today I'm here with Kevin Wagner and he's here to talk to us about how imaging habitable zone planets has now become possible. So first of all, Kevin, could you please explain to everybody who you are and where you work? Hi Melanie, thanks. I'm really excited to be here. So I'm a postdoctoral researcher uh, more specifically a Sagan Fellow in NASA's Hubble Fellowship Program at the University of Arizona. And I work in Stewart Observatory, which um, is more of a historical observatory located in the center of the university campus in downtown Tucson. So most of the time I'm using the telescopes that are situated on the mountaintops around, well, a little bit further outside of town and those that are uh, say in Hawaii or Chile and using these large ground-based facilities to try to take pictures of planets around other stars. Now, to, typically, it's quite hard to get time on these telescopes. It sounds like you spend a huge amount of time on them. It is difficult to get time, yes, and it remains challenging. Um, we still have to propose for time, and um, there's a critical time allocation panel that reviews the proposals. And um, fortunately, we have been very successful at getting our proposals through and getting the time required to do our science, which ends up being a lot in some cases. I never realized you could actually get great big chunks. So that's quite interesting. Um, so tell us, please, Kevin, how was this made possible? How have you been able to make this, this detection of habitable planets? So first I should say, we're not quite sure. Well, we're actually sure that we can't detect any planet that I would really call habitable just yet. So what we enabled with the NEAR experiment is the detection of planets that are a bit smaller than Neptune in the habitable zone of the closest star Alpha Centauri or the closest stellar system. There's actually a component of Alpha Centauri called Proxima Centauri that's a bit closer, but it's a lower mass star. And uh, for all intents and purposes, Alpha Centauri A is the closest sun-like star. And we did this by taking the techniques of exoplanet imaging that have been developed over the past decades and applying them into this new framework of mid-infrared exoplanet imaging. So for a while, this kind of seemed like a pipe dream to image the habitable zone of, a, of the closest star even, and to be able to achieve the sensitivity to see a planet in the habitable zone, even a relatively large planet like say Neptune, Saturn, or Jupiter. Um, we took these techniques that were developed for imaging very young planets and developed a few new pieces of technology that allowed us to apply these in the mid-infrared. So why this is so challenging is that, well, we're looking for a planet like the Earth around the closest star shining in the mid-infrared. But of course, we are sitting on a planet that is like the Earth and also shines in the mid-infrared. So this means that the sky is shining brightly at us, the telescope is shining brightly at us, the camera is shining brightly at us. And this all adds up to a lot of noise that makes it really difficult to see that faint point of light next to the, well, already what is a really bright star. Mm. So. That's why for a while progress was made in imaging very young planets and also very massive planets that are quite a bit more massive than Jupiter. So a lot of the technology was worked out for those purposes and near combined these things. So in particular, what we're using is called adaptive optics. So we're using a deformable mirror 
that essentially imprints the opposite signal of the blurring of the Earth's atmosphere. So in real time, we're able to counteract the blurring of the Earth's atmosphere and uh, recover a relatively pristine wavefront or image of the stars and planets. Um, in addition, we use a device called a coronagraph, which lets us block out the light from the star and see the fainter points of light next to it. So these are some of the things that were developed for shorter wavelengths. And then we uh, developed some variants of them for the mid-infrared and also some additional tricks to deal with the higher levels of noise and background that we're dealing with. So that was perhaps a long-winded explanation of what it, how we got to the point where we're not quite able to yet image an Earth-like planet in the habitable zone of the closest star. But uh, hopefully it gives you some sense of the exciting progression that this has enabled. So we've gone from imaging super Jupiters around very young stars, so these kind of niche targets, to being able to detect planets that are actually something like we have an example of in the solar system, so say Neptune or Saturn, but if it were closer in and in the habitable zone. One of my colleagues phrased this best, I think, and he said this is the game on moment for exoplanet imaging to where we can really start to see something like what we would call a normal planet. And our sensitivity isn't at its final point yet. This was just the first experiment to be able to do this sort of mid-infrared imaging of nearby habitable zone exoplanets. And either with some further noise mitigating, uh, well, developments in the technology or bigger telescopes, or perhaps just more time, we should be able to push the sensitivity down to the point where we can see something like the Earth in the habitable zone of the closest star as well. And that's what I think is really exciting and kind of one of these holy grails of modern astronomy. So that's what we're working towards and where I hope we'll get in perhaps even the next decade. And a decade is fast in your sector, isn't it? Um, relatively so, yeah. So. <laughs> You know, this is a field that has been in development for, well, probably since the 80s and now mm. 40 years later, we're at the point where we can detect things that are like the planets in our own solar system. Now, um, before we started recording, I asked you um, how you capture these images. Is it through um, just one land-based a telescope or is it like a multitude just like we we caught the images of the black hole are you also using uh, you know space telescopes as well as part of this capture so for our experiment well our recent experiment and most of the work that i've been doing in the recent past we've been using ground-based telescopes and usually we use one telescope at a time this is well in some ways a lot simpler just from a technological standpoint um, combining the light for multiple telescopes has its own challenges, but it can also be very powerful. Um, there are a couple of ways that we might like to combine the light from different telescopes. We might either just say, take the images from the different facilities and stack them on top of each other and use that to enhance the sensitivity. Or we could do something like what you mentioned, uh, actually taking uh, the image of the black hole required multiple telescopes mm -hmm. and a technique called interferometry where we use these multiple telescopes spread out across the globe as a sort of synthetic aperture. And if you just imagine having a telescope, say the diameter of the earth and having a mask that you place over it with just a few holes in the mask. So you only let through a little bit of the light. Well, if you have those holes separated at the edge of the earth, you'll still get the same resolving power as that whole uh, dish the same size as the earth or whole uh, mirror or collective power the same size as the diameter of the earth. Now you won't get as much light, but you will get that resolution. 
So we could do the same thing for exoplanets. We could, and people have before taken two telescopes that are um, not quite situated all the way across the earth um, because it turns out that for um, doing this in, well, the black hole image, I, I should first say the black hole image was taken in radio wavelengths. So these are much, much longer even than what I've been talking about in the mid-infrared. Mm. So in the mid-infrared interferometry is a much more challenging problem. The, essentially the challenge is that the light needs to be added on timescales that are, well, in which the light is coherent with each other from the various telescopes so that, well, you need to be able to synchronize your clocks and camera readouts very precisely in order to do this. And for the radio, that coherence time is a bit longer. So we're able to do this in the radio, but not quite in the mid-infrared yet. We need to actually have the telescopes be situated quite close to each other and combine the light optically, say with uh, tunnels underneath the telescopes or something like that. And there are also plans to do this in space. So you mentioned uh, doing this in space also. And we have also, we've used the Hubble Space Telescope. Well, I say we kind of collectively as the broader <laughs> astronomical community. Um, the Hubble Space Telescope has been used to take pictures of exoplanets. And that's of course a single dish observatory. Um, but there are also plans for creating uh, large space-based interferometer that would be operating in the mid-infrared and would be sensitive to planets in the habitable zones around nearby stars. And what's really exciting about that is if we could do this in an interferometric uh, um, well, mode is that we could access this, well, much, much higher spatial resolution. And the experiment that we just completed um, what we call near is really exciting in that we've enabled the sensitivity in the habitable zone of the closest star. But of course, that's the closest star. So any stars that are further away, their planets are going to appear much closer to them in terms of angular separation. Mm -hmm. So for that, either having a very large telescope or well, what we already have is called the very large telescope. So if we have what is now being conceived of as the extremely large telescopes, kind of these 30 to 40 meter uh, telescopes on the ground, or some large interferometric array, then we could start to explore the habitable zones of stars that are a bit further away as well. So, Jenna, this is, am I actually am keeping up with all of this, which is shocking me. It could be because you're explaining it really well. Um, but Kevin, oh, well, thanks. <laughs> I, I've got to say that it's been quite a challenge to get to this stage, hasn't it? Um, tell us, how long have you been working at um, the Department of Astronomy and Steward Observatory? And and was this one of your goals when you started there? Yeah, so I arrived here in 2015 as a graduate student and I was interested in exoplanet imaging broadly for this reason that I thought it gave us an exciting opportunity to be able to explore the habitable zones of nearby stars, which I think is relatively interesting in astronomy and that it's something that I can see a practical use for, probably not in my lifetime, but perhaps uh, a bit further down the road. Um, so yeah, I was interested in particularly exploring Earth-like planets in the future. And I started off in exoplanet imaging because I thought that there were exciting possibilities there. So I worked on a lot of very young systems at first because this is where the technology was enabling us to perform some exciting science. And um, well, I started as a graduate student and defended my PhD last year and stayed on as a postdoctoral fellow because well, the opportunities here were really just too exciting for me to leave at the time. 
And I also enjoy living in Tucson. And so I, I think this is one of the places where I would personally be happiest also. So that combination really struck to keep me here. Certainly helped, didn't it? Mm -hmm. um, and, and so what is going to be next? I mean, where do you go from here? What, what can you do to make this mission clearer? Yeah, so, well, I told you this is really just the first mm -hmm. experiment that showed us what is possible here. And we learned a lot of lessons along the way. And particularly we dealt with a lot of kind of systematic artifacts or let's say noise that's inherent to the system itself. And one of them that turned out to be a really big challenge and one that we actually have a good understanding of now, and that's actually, I think also relatively easy to explain is one that we can, uh, well, mitigate in the future to make further significant progress. And this is, well, the artifact itself is called persistence in the detector. And it's really similar to the old plasma screen TVs that would have burn in in the corners. So if you displayed an old, well, if the, TV channel displayed their logo in the corner of an old plasma screen TV, the earlier models, well, owners of the earlier models would find out that that logo would be burned into their new television set. And our mid-infrared camera actually does something very similar. So what we do for this, this mode of exoplanet imaging is we try to move the stars on the camera very rapidly and synchronize that with the camera readout. So we move the stars and take a picture once every 10th of a second. And this enables us to get rid of most of the systematic noise. And like I said, the camera and the telescope in the sky are insanely bright in the mid infrared. This is where the Earth's peak emission is. So we, we have to do this method really of, we call it chopping. So we chop the field on the detector and then subtract one image from the other to get rid of most of that. But what this does also is when we're looking at very bright stars, well, those bright stars are well, shining on the detector while we're moving them. And even though we aren't reading it out and taking an image, some of those photons are essentially just burned in. So we see this bright streak in the image. Um, and this rules out actually a lot of the area in which we would like to look for planets. It limits the area which we could search for planets by something like 50%. And also um, for reasons that are kind of complicated with all some of our other data processing techniques, this feature also just really limits our sensitivity throughout the whole image field or the whole plane of the image. So we feel like we understand it and we know how to mitigate it or get rid of it. So I think this will be a pretty promising area just to implement some of these lessons um, for this artifact in particular and some of the other things that we learned along the way with this experiment to push the sensitivity even further. Now you did mention um, the coronagraph, which um, limits the, the actual star, the, the light from the star. Um, mm -hmm. excuse my naivety here. Is there anything like the sunshade that I've heard banded around? Yeah, um, it's very similar. So both What's of the these, difference? <laughs> both of these optics, the purpose is to block the light from the star. The difference is that the coronagraph is situated inside of the telescope and the star shade is situated outside of it. Gotcha. Um, of course, it's much easier to align the coronagraph when it's situated inside of your telescope than when it's a separate body outside. And, um, an interesting number to keep in mind here is that this starshade concept requires the telescope and the starshade to be separated by something on the order of 100,000 kilometers. So maintaining these alignments is actually quite challenging, especially compared to just having the optic right there in your telescope. But what the starshade does is that it allows you to uh, block the light before it gets into your system at all. 
And when you don't do that, when you have the mask somewhere in your optical system itself, you deal with a lot of stray light and reflections. And well, when you point a very sensitive telescope at a very bright star, it's not very strange to see some reflections and stray light. And well, in other words, you find every imperfection of your optical system. Mm. So would that ever be a reality, do you think? Yeah, I think it is possible. Um, like I said, it's certainly challenging and this isn't my particular area of expertise, but okay. my colleagues that work on this problem um, seem to have some promising initial data that show that it should be possible. And um, something that I think is particularly exciting is that all future space telescopes are now required to be starshade ready. Ah. So it, it doesn't actually require that much, essentially just a, a laser pointer and receiving optic. Oh. But, but um, so this it turned out that telescopes like the James Webb te Space Telescope were already so set in their design plans and well, they were already under construction that adding something so seemingly simple was out of the question at that point. <laughs> it's a shame, isn't it? I think so, but I'm also still excited for what Webb will do. Yeah, so am I actually. Got plans to speak to somebody there in the next few weeks, I hope. Fingers crossed. Oh, cool. Um, so what does a good day look like to Kevin Wagner? Yeah, so maybe I should preface this by saying that I live in a area of very uh, environmental extremes. So today <laughs> I woke up and it was below freezing and um, in June I'll wake up and it'll be above 80 degrees and it'll quickly get to be above uh, 110 degrees. And I guess you're all used to dealing in um, centigrade. So these are Fahrenheit units. I, oh my word. It's probably obvious also when I brought that over a hundred. Um, so on days like this, when it's cold, I tend to wake up and um, make some coffee and check my email and then start quickly getting to work. And then later in the day when it's nicer out, I'll go outside and do some exercise, um, typically either running or, um, well, living in Tucson also, there are lots of rocks and mountains around. So either going hiking or rock climbing. Um, rock climbing is actually my second, uh, well, I'll say passion or probably what I spend the most time doing outside of astronomy. Um, but in the summer, the, all of this just shifts. So I have to shift my complete time, time schedule and working schedule so that I make use of the early hours of the morning when I can actually be outside. So mm. wake up and go for a run or go climbing or hiking then, and then come back home, get my work done in the afternoon when it's just too insanely hot to be outside. Wow. I didn't realize it got that hot there, to be honest. <laughs> yes, um, sir. In the middle of the desert with the tall, iconic saguaro cacti that are seen in the old Western movies and whatnot. Damn. But that also makes it a very great place to do astronomy. So it's very dry. And we also mm. have all of these high mountains around. So that's where a lot of the observatories are located. And yeah, it's a very dark place and with great clear skies. So is there anybody that you would like to work with um, that could possibly move this forward for you that you haven't had access to so far? Hmm. Yeah, that's a very interesting question. So let me again take a step back and say that the experiment that we just completed was really unique in this regard. So private public partnerships aren't entirely uncommon in astronomy, but in the field of exoplanet imaging, this is really the first large scale one that I'm aware of. 
So something like this, getting 100 hours of telescope time to stare at one particular star with the BLT probably wouldn't have happened if uh, the Breakthrough Prize Foundation hadn't. And their founder, Yuri Milner, who himself is very interested in exoplanets and uh, astrobiology and Alpha Centauri in particular. So this experiment definitely wouldn't have happened if there weren't this great level of interest from the private sector. Um, and going forward, um, Let's see, I'm not sure who in particular might be a great person with a great interest in astronomy, but yeah, if you're out there and you have a lot of money and interest in some of the nearby stars and want to help contribute to science, definitely contact us. Yeah, do let us know and we'll let him know. <laughs> yeah, oh, we'll name a planet after you or something like that. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Kevin. This has been really, really insightful, I've got to say. Um, I'm going to listen back to this again because I didn't capture all of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Melanie. This was really uh, fun talking to you. Um, but I just wanted to get get to meet the person behind this great big story um, and, and wonder where it was going to go next. But there is still plenty of movement, isn't there? There's plenty of traction for, for more exciting um, you know, outcomes certainly in the next decade, you believe? Oh, yeah. I really feel like this is just getting started. Okay, so where do we find out more about what you're up to, Kevin? Uh, so I'm on Twitter at Astro Wagner, and I have a website. It's astrowagner.wordpress.com. Um, feel free to contact me via either of those. And yeah, I'd be happy to, well, hear whatever you're interested in and read and hopefully have some answers to your questions. Well, that's all for now, but we'll be back very soon with more people who are changing and shaping our world for the better. Thank you for listening to the latest Irish Tech News podcast. Check back every day for the latest episode. You can follow us on Twitter at Irish underscore tech news on Facebook facebook.com forward slash Irish Tech News. On LinkedIn, linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash Irish dash tech dash news. On Instagram, instagram.com forward slash Irish Tech News dot IE. And on TikTok, tiktok.com forward slash at Irish Tech News.